When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of Fishology. For those of you who may be new here in Fishology, we go in-depth on advanced stats for your Miami Marlins. Before I introduce everyone, this is our very first episode of Fishology in the season, during the season. This is what we wanted when we started up Fishology. As always, I am joined by Mr. Eli Sussman and our favorite jacked employee, Louis Adeo Weiss. Guys, how you feeling? Feeling all right. Been an interesting first couple of weeks. A lot of things that we can touch on and we'll touch on tonight. Eli? Yeah, I just, I love having the team of extremes that this is, as we've kind of been looking at entering the year at the, both the individual level and the team performance level, there are things that this team does extremely well and also that it does very poorly. And that contrast. Uh, even in these small samples, that makes it especially fun. Uh, I know we're going to lead off with a guy that we already had high expectations for, and he's even surpassing those expectations. So to, to see somebody potentially reach a new level of performance, uh, that's what we try to identify first using this kind of show and the kind of information that we have here. And you might be wondering who that player is. Of course, our first uh, player to discuss is Mr. Luis Arias, who is having an insane start to his season an OPS of 1.253, an OPS plus of 236. I know we don't want really to be like to get to batting average, but when you're batting 500, that definitely um, is something to know. And Luis Arise does also lead all major league position players in war. He currently has a 1.2 war, the highest of all position players, and third of all players now named Kyle Freeland and Shohei Otani. Uh, Lewis. Arise is having one of the best starts uh, to a season in Major League history, already having 23 hits, four doubles. Uh, I mentioned OPS plus 236, a slugging of almost 700, and we're only at the start of the season. What have you seen from Arias? What can we expect? And can he keep this up the rest of the way? Uh, I mean, realistically, we know he's not going to sustain a 500 batting average, um, nor will he sustain a slugging percentage north of 700. I think you'll see those numbers tend to normalize. And even if he tends to have his average season, which at this point for his career is 320, 380, 419, you got exactly what you asked for because, you know, for the pitcher they gave up in Pablo Lopez, though he has a higher ceiling in his own right as a pitcher, um, that's kind of the return you'd expect if you're talking about an even trade. And for both teams, it's kind of been that so far. But, you know, Pablo, uh, I don't know. It's, and Pablo's gone off to a great start, too, in Minnesota. But with a rise, hitting 500 for the totality of the season, no. Um, I will be interested to see how long he does stay hitting 400. I mean, if he takes that into May, I mean, again, I don't, think in my lifetime somebody's ever going to hit 400 again with the talent we have on both ends defensively and offensive and uh as far as pitching goes but yeah i mean like you have possibly the next the second marlin to winning batting title and it's the defending american league batting champion you have like the last two reigning al batting champs on your team now with guriel and arise um I, I mean, I think he's just such a fun player to watch, even if he's not the best defender at second base and he's kind of just positionless as a whole. He just 
he's just so fun to watch offensively. He just kind of like Tony Gwynn where he just finds holes. And I've been on like the Tony Gwynn, Luis Arise comparison train for a long time. Sometimes usually every five or 10 games, I like to go through their, uh, their slash lines through the same number of games and Arise has played 402 games. It, he's, as I noted, he's slashed 320, 384, 19. And then if you look at Tony Gwynn's first 402 games, 323, 373, 413, they're almost Xeroxes of each other. Quickly, I wanted to shout out old friend Glenn Geffner, who, for people that are not aware, he has his own newsletter now that he's writing almost every single day, and almost all the posts have a Marlins lean to it. He had a post, as we're recording this, the day that we're recording this, he did a post on Arise comparing him to Tony Gwynn. In fact, comparing him to Gwynn and Rod Carew and also Ichiro, but especially Tony Gwynn. And I bring that up because Glenn is seasoned enough to have covered Tony Gwynn in person in San Diego during the latter half of Gwynn's Hall of Fame playing career. So I felt like he was an especially qualified person to make that comparison. That's unavoidable. And now for those of us, those people watching us on YouTube, this is a screenshot that you um, you alerted me to, Lewis, from MLB Now and Brian Kenny breaking it down, looking at how Arise just compares to the generation that he's playing in. The raw numbers are awesome as they are. The raw numbers are, uh, they certainly indicate a player that is doing things in a way that nobody else is doing it. But especially relative to this era, that entering this year was so dominated by infield overshifting in a way that gradually cut down on the number of hits that we saw to be a 320 career hitter forget what he's doing like this year right now but for his career to this point hitting relative to an era where it's so hard to get base hits he is adjusted batting average is 130 meaning 30 percent higher than the league average during the era that he's playing in that is unprecedented nobody has done that in the live ball era going back over a hundred years over such a big sample. What what he's doing truly is special, that this works so well. We know that he puts balls in play, but it's so much more than that. And I think that's one thing that has stood up from watching him play this year and why he's doing um, so well this year is that it's not just about getting, uh, like making contact at an incredible rate and walking twice as much as he's striking out. But he, his quality of contact early on this year has been really impressive, especially this past series in Philadelphia. All these like deep line drives to the gaps. Arise will have himself extra bases into the corner. Now this will be uh, maybe even three. Got to that perfect spot in the third base with a triple. And of course... I think we've made it far enough without mentioning the cycle that he had the first ever in Marlins history to get a cycle. You need to hit a home run. This that's why he was never really seen as a likely candidate to do a cycle just because of how limited he is in the over the fence power department. He got just enough of a ball out to left field at citizens Bank park in order to make that all possible. That is, that's something that we looked at the WBC performance that he had where he hit a couple homers and now seeing it now, like this is a player who just turned 26 years old. He's just, we think, entering his prime as established as he was when the Marlins traded for him. It's not ludicrous to think that this could be a higher level of performance than he's ever had before. That's what it would take really to validate this trade so completely as if it was even better than we thought he was coming into it. This was a divisive trade when it went down for the Marlins to give up not only Pablo Lopez, but two other prospects on top of him for a player in a rise that is not a totally well-rounded player, but he's now doing everything that we are accustomed to doing in terms of getting hits, but he's also doing them in such important situations. And he's adding this extra element of isolated power to have his slugging about 200 points higher than his 500 batting average. This is what a true star offensive player looks like. And that really dramatically changes where this Marlins team could be headed in 2023. And you know what? He tugs at the heartstrings of, you know, traditionalists. So like, listen, like this is an analytics centric podcast. We're not like married to batting average the way we would be with most other players, because we understand the philosophical advancements or and for, for traditionalists, it would be um, digressions or um, digressions. It would be a, um, 
you know, just I'm blanking on the word, but it would it would be a reversal of the way the game was played that they they that people who watch baseball 60, 70, even even as back as 50 years ago just remember the game where speed and putting the ball in play was, you know, predicated the Whitey Herzog way, the Cardinals. Arise kind of tugs at the heartstrings of those guys who kind of just they were scrappy and they got base hits and they didn't kind of sell out for power. It was, you know, you emphasize batting average. Brian Kenny kind of noted that. Um, so he's kind of like honestly looking at a time capsule. And, you know, Danny, you asked me about this earlier, if Arise could sustain the level of hitting he's on. While he's probably never going to hit 500 in a season, nor will he threaten 400 the way Tony Gwynn did when he hit 394-94, you can see with the way that his swing is, and I was actually listening to Paul O'Neill on a Yankees broadcast earlier tonight talk about players who had suffered oblique injuries, and Harrison Bader was one of them, um, a guy who hit for a lot more power when he moved to the Yankees. It's the swing, the uppercut swing when you're chasing home runs that kind of leads to a lot of upper body injuries and guys tend to miss time. And, you know, maybe what we thought we were going to see or could have assumed we would be able to see from them is taken from us because of time missed. Arise's swing is so balanced. It's so even that he, his ability to not sell out for power because he doesn't try to do that. I think you could see him be this kind of hitter you know, consistently hitting 300 and th um, threatening for batting titles for a decade plus to come because his swing doesn't, you know, necessarily facilitate a lot of home runs. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's that makes for longevity. And I think that's what you'd like to see. It's it's something if you can hit 40 home runs in a season once, but if you can consistently hit 300 and be durable the way that, say, like Jimmy Rollins was, though he didn't do it with batting average, he just kind of stayed on the field. I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, and, and with this as well, uh, I think a concern that maybe some people have with Arise was just the defensive side coming into the season. Um, him moving from first base DH type player to taking over second base Jazz's position as he moved to the center field. As we'll get to that um, later in the pod, but. Um, Eli, um, how, how do you see Arise's fielding, maybe, I don't want to say compared to his offense, but how have you seen it so far, his transition to second base and being an everyday player at second base compared to his first base ability with the Twins? He's fine over there, simply put. There was an unfair, I thought, characterization of him as playing out of position. People would clump him in with Jazz trying to figure out center field and Segura trying to figure out third base. Right. This was his primary position for a lot of his professional career, even a good amount of his major league career prior to the last season. Watching him play, like he just looks like a second baseman. He, in terms of everything, in terms of how quickly he transfers the ball, in terms of the accuracy of his throws, in terms of just the, the slickness of his glove and his sure-handedness, um, He's been fine. He's been somewhere within the realm of league average. Um, whether you look at defensive runs saved to this point, he is a plus one in that regard. Um, you look at, I think, outs above average. He's see exactly where he is in that regard over a small sample size. It's hard to point to a single ac actual mistake that he has made defensively to this point in the season. He's doing all the routine plays. He's doing some above average plays. By outs above average, he's a negative one to this point in the season. They're estimating that he's made, he has a 76% success rate on balls hit in his direction. And his estimated success rate on those plays is 81%. So it's really just the difference between what he's done and what they expected him to do comes down to, it looks like two different plays. The one thing that stands out about him, the weakness is, his mobility laterally, knowing that he is just not the same athlete as the typical middle infielder. So his explosiveness is lacking, his leaping ability, his range, diving side to side, that is that is limited. And there's probably going to be, I think inevitably, more balls than you like that get through the infield just to either side of him because of that particular limitation. He's close enough to a solid player in the other aspects of second base defense that I, I don't see him appreciably hurting the Marlins in that small sample. Is there anything that you want to nitpick Lewis about that side of the ball? 
I mean, you kind of just described him as a second baseman the way that most described Jeff Kent when they kind of trashed him for the duration of it, for the duration of his career. You know, they said he wasn't a good defender, um, but he kind of just makes all of the routine plays. I mean, there's been times where he's, you know, gotten a bit balls that I wouldn't expect him to get because I like what you and, have other, and others have assessed is that I'm kind of going into a rise with the notion that he's a guy playing a position where he really shouldn't be playing though. Obviously if you look at his um, fielding logs, he's played there more than any other position and you would like to put him at first base because the assumption is that he's going to make less mistakes there because it's a less defensively demanding spot, but he's been fine. I don't think he's going to win a gold glove there, but um, you know, if he's an average second baseman, given the ability that he has at the plate, I think that kind of like overshadows that. How do you think for him the slugging side of it will go? You mentioned his him not really being able to to maintain you know so many homers or or have that type of power. And with his slugging right now, it's closer to seven hundred. Do you see for this season his slugging to maintain or let's say be a career high this season, or do you see it similarly how it was maybe a few seasons ago or his tenure with the Twins, or or is just this going to be maybe his big slugging year. I mean, the baseball wouldn't indicate it. I mean, run scoring is up. I don't know if you discredit him a little bit because of that, but you know, everybody, there are plenty of uh, long career big leaguers who had that kind of like juice ball year. If you remember the year that it was 2017 where over a hundred players had 20 home runs or Wade Boggs is anomalous 1987 where he, hit 24 it just kind of it happens i don't think marlins park and the rest of the ballparks in the division beyond maybe P, um citizens bank would facilitate a rise hitting for much power but he's just going to be a guy that you're not going to see him slug you know 600 that's you know those are those are numbers reserved for you know the likes of aaron judge and mike trout and you know, Otani when he's at his best. I, I mean, he's a he's a consistent 410 to 430 slug guy. Would he have one year where he maybe slugs 470, 480? Sure. Your averages are kind of built on seasons like that. So I it wouldn't shock me if he maybe hits for a bit more power, but that doesn't necessarily have to be doubles or home run homer power. It could be doubles and could be him laying out a couple of more triples despite him being limited um, as a base runner because of his size, but, you know, it remains to be seen. But I don't rule out him, you know, having a career year slugging. We need to note that how much his numbers have been sort of inflated by that one particular game in Philadelphia when he had the double <laughs> and the triple and the home run all in the same park. But that home run in particular being a ball that would not have gone out at Lone Depot Park, among many other places, no doubt it's going to come down. And I imagine the isolated power, the gap between the batting average and the slugging is going to come down from what it currently is to some extent. Uh, the question sort of is, you know, how he approaches his at-bats if he's batting third in the lineup versus where he was originally to start the year as a leadoff hitter. If that different role in the lineup affects his mindset at the plate, if he is being encouraged to produce runs rather than to quote set the table in that particular way um unless he's making that conscious effort to be a different type of guy just to suit the team's needs and to play into this role that skip schumacher has very recently put him in by dropping him a couple spots in the lineup i think that's the only way that you see a big difference in slugging compared to what we're used to uh, yeah so i think overall um you still look at his career history as a better um as a better projection for what he's going to do this year rather than the hot start that he's off to. I think it's a perfect opportunity to go into our next topic, our next player. Uh, someone who's having a bounce back, um, who, who's hitting always for a lot of power. You're, nef you're not going to get there with the batting average or anything like that. His slugging has been a, a career, not career high, but has been the highest uh, since his rookie year or his year with the Kansas City Royals. OPS of 867 currently, OPS plus of 126, Mr. Jorge Soler leading the team with four home runs. Um, Lewis, how has Jorge Soler 
improved from last season despite the injuries and everything. How much of a better player is he in 2023 compared to 2022? I mean, you kind of previewed it when he when you talked about how hard he hits the baseball. And if you look at his batted ball data on different pitches, he just hits the baseball incredibly hard. We again we need we need to look at most things with caution when we're talking about 12 games, but the exit velocity has kind of sustained itself. Even last year when before he got hurt, he was still in the 99th percentile and average exit velo, and he was in like 98th and max exit velo, and he's right there again this year. He's still striking out quite a bit, but actually his career strikeout rate is 27%. It was 27.2 at the start of the season. He's only striking out 22.4% of the time right now, or 22.7. So again, it's 50 plate appearances. It's a small sample of it's a maybe in the course of a full season, that's like a 12th of a full season. So you don't you don't know yet, but um, he's doing a lot of things better. You know, the on-base percentage would lead you to believe like he's just jet doing most of his damage with power. And that's true. I mean, he's flirting with a 600 slug, but this is a guy that you could see maybe sustaining a 500 slug over the course of the season because of his ability to hit for power. He's got a 126 OPS plus right now. And the thing I think, and personally between you and me, Eli and Danny, I think he's going to get better this year. And I say that because I believe that the contact that he's making is going to catch up to him in a good way. Because if you look at his batted ball data, he's hitting like below 200 on secondary on breaking pitches. He's hitting 167, but the X batting average is expected batting average is 306. The expected the slug is 444, so it's still respectable. But the expected slug is 773. Average exit velo is 96.7 miles an hour off the bat, off of breaking balls. And we know last year, he, I believe he hit under 160 against breaking stuff last year, and that wasn't good. And the expected stats weren't great over a larger sample, but I think that, you know, he, if those even come in the middle of those two numbers meet in the middle, you're talking about a guy who could legitimately be an all-star. And what position do you play? I mean, play probably in a corner outfield as a replacement later. But if the Mar if you told the Marlins that when they signed him, that he was going to post a season of, you know, 26 to 30% above league average, you'll take that. Obviously, you know, Eli has it on the screen, though this is a visual media or this is an audio medium. Um, Solaire's also just, he's hitting for a lot of power because he's among the top players in launch angle. He's seventh among qualified players thus far in launch angle. I mean, he, his game is predicated on hitting home runs. He's very, one-dimensional in that regard, but I mean, it's very encouraging that he's cutting down slightly on the strikeout rate, and yeah, I mean, the guy just hits the ball so incredibly hard. I took this particular screenshot about launch angle um, to point to the one undesirable aspect of that, which is watching him, especially on this past road trip, he was just getting underneath the ball so much even though you want to elevate the ball, get it into the air, ideally what you want to do is hit line drives, hard line drives. His average launch angle off the bat this year, 25.5 degrees. That's the number that if you were to hit that on every swing, if every swing was like that, you would be Aaron Judge. Um, you'd be Aaron Judge, like peak Aaron Judge on a higher level. That is exactly what you want to hit the ball at that particular launch angle. However, that is on average. That's not what Solaire is doing every swing. With Solaire, I think especially recently, we've seen that combination of occasional low liners and then a lot of high fly balls. With his power, he could get underneath the ball and still hit it out, and he's already done that this year. But in the most cases, if you go too high to that extreme, those are just routine plays. Those are pop-ups or those are very shallow fly balls. There have been a lot of those for him this year which is why he's not getting quite as many hits on balls in play as you would expect just based on the quality of contact, just because he's getting underneath the ball so much. Ultimately, I think the most important thing is just to keep that strikeout rate, as you said, um, better than it has been in a while and really slightly better than league average. If he's in that spot, then over the larger sample, he's going to perform really well uh, to be an all-star version, to be the best possible version of himself somebody that you actually want to have in your lineup every single day. Um, this launch angle actually should come down a little bit. You want to get rid of some of those empty pop-ups that tend to be unproductive outs and are very rarely 
hits in the first place. So that's just something to watch with him is not to be too laser focused on trying to hit home runs every single swing, because if you're just a few millimeters off on that swing in the wrong direction, you get underneath it. That big home run that he had against the Phillies that tied the game in an ultimately Marlins win. I think he was helped a lot by the pitch location. The pitch was like knee high. So it's very hard to get underneath the ball if it's only two feet off the ground. And so that did him a lot of favors. Um, if he's getting a lot of pitches low in the zone, then he's going to be great because those are the balls where um, the angle of his swing is going to uh, like line up perfectly with pitches low in the zone. Just keep in mind that there are, to this point, you can, it, there's more than a few examples of him getting underneath the ball, um, and he wants to cut those out of his diet, if at all possible. Yeah, and you mentioning his raw power of Horace Soler, um, I was just looking up his ISO. Uh, for those of you who may not know what ISO is, power it takes in the raw power of a hitter by taking only extra base hits. Um, of that, so an ISO for let's say a double is 203 for a triple home run, uh, uh, etc. And Horace Soler for his ISO, he has 370, which I know it's a very small sample size, but that is the highest of his career. The only higher number was that 48 home run year with Kansas City of 304. Um, Lewis, when you when I tell you his number of ISO isolated power is 370. Are you not surprised at all, or maybe even a little? And can he go back to that 2019 MVP caliber year, or at least 75% of it? I mean, there's no nothing to say with the what the early results indicate that he can at least be three quarters of that player, sure. But and he hit all of those home runs in a very pitcher-friendly division for the most part. So it can be said that. You know, Solaire, could he hit 40 again? Sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. Do I think he's going to run a 370 ISO? No, because, again, I think those are kind of reserved for the elite of the elite um, when it comes to guys who um, manage extra base hit power beyond homers, also hitting doubles and just hitting homers in general. I don't think Solaire has that. If he ran a 304 ISO, you definitely ain't going to see him in Miami next year, and if he – <laughs> even did that and they don't remain competitive and the run differential catches up to them, you may see him in another uniform come deadline. So I don't know, but as of right now, I mean, again, I, and it's crazy to think that he's hitting for the amount of power he is given the fact that he's gotten incredibly unlucky at times with some of the batted balls that he's been putting into play. I mean, he hits like he hits changeups harder than he does any other pitch and he's hitting I believe he's hitting like 125 and it's only eight plate appearances ending on them this year, but like 97.3 off the bat, I believe like the guy is just squaring up everything. And again, I, and even with the shift restrictions, you think, I mean, Eli noted this, that like, Solaire when he wasn't shifted against last year, hit over 400, I believe. And now you're looking at him again, a lot of those perceived hits that we thought he was going to get, haven't turned into them yet. But I, again, I think they will. Um, and even if that means he hits 270 with like a 250 ISO for 15 million a year or whatever he's making, that's like a bargain. And even if he's just an average to slightly below average defender in the outfield, and he's even showed a little bit of defensive versatility. I mean, he's playing both corners, like whether or not he's playing it at the level of Al K line remains to be seen. It's not going to happen, but it's, you know, it's just another little thing that he's kind of done for the team this year and yeah he's he's definitely early returns are very nice on on him after a rough first season that was riddled with injury and inconsistent performance yeah the other encouraging note i wanted to finish on with him is that he's using more of the whole field than he has in recent years particularly last year last year he was extremely pull heavy and that's what made him very easy to shift against is because he was trying to put everything to left field so far this year, um, that pull rate has come way down. He's right around the league average in terms of how often he's pulling the ball. He's using both center field and right fields much more than I'd anticipated. And I think that bodes very well in terms of just finding hits in different parts of the ballpark. And we've already seen him hit home runs to other parts of the field as well. That's never been an issue for him. Um, so as you talked about, he does seem to be putting like 
good quality swings on all these different pitch types and seeing the ball really well. Um, if he continues doing that, this is, this should be a pretty elite hitter. That's how locked in he is right now that his timing is right. And his vision is on with these. And he is, um, I I'm really encouraged by that aspect of it, that he's not trying to yank everything to left field. So that could be contributing to why he is making a good amount of contact. And I, I think this all just bundles together to see a player that is red hot right now. It's as simple as that. And it, and it doesn't get talked about enough as the last thing we'll have on Solaire. Um, he hasn't shown it early. I believe it's 12 strikeouts and 50 plate appearances and only three walks, but he's shown at times that he can be a pretty disciplined hitter. And a lot of those guys who tend to strike out a lot because of the ethos of, of hitting nowadays is, you know, three true outcomes. He can, he can be a pretty disciplined hitter when it comes to drawing walks. I believe he's had a couple of seasons of 60, 70 walks. Um, if he even shows a little bit more play discipline, if he's a league average hitter in terms of, um, play, you know, walks taken and the strikeout rate kind of sustains itself. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy who, again, being an all-star, I think is an understatement at that point. You may get some down ballot MVP votes if a lot of his performance further sustains itself. I wanted to go ahead and talk about Jath Chisholm Jr., uh, but mostly focusing on his defense, his new position in center field, uh, which has been very hit or miss so far to the season. But again, it's so early in the season, it's very hard uh, to really describe or, or really go in-depth defensively. Um, Lewis, Jazz, new center field position, still learning it, still very young into the season. You mentioned just a 12th of the way through it. Um, how have Jazz fared for you at center field in terms of maybe defensive run save, outs above average? Just how has Jazz overall been so far this season? I mean, again, it's it's they played 13 games, so – the results, they say something, but they don't say enough to give you a full indication of the kind of player he's going to be doing a specific thing. I think he's kind of just been, like, at times passable. Because I remember in that New York series, he made a couple of catches on a couple of balls running to his left. That you're like, okay, like, this is what we kind of talked about. He has the speed to be a competent center fielder. He's a speed. He's a fast guy. I mean, he's a 20 stolen base guy perennially when he is healthy. Um, you'd think that speed would translate into outfield defense, but then there's times where he just kind of doesn't get good reads on a ball. You know, I remember when Cameron Maven was a young player and Cameron Maven had this tendency to step, take two or three steps back before he would run in on short sinking fly balls. I've seen that with jazz a couple of times too. I know there were a couple of hits in that Mets series where he kind of didn't get the best of reads on fly balls and that would cost him. And there would be a base hit here or a base hit there. And those add up over time. Um, more pitches that pitchers have to throw, et cetera. But, you know, I think, I think he's still learning and uh, take it from a guy like Skip Schumacher who played second place and played center field. He understands what it means to have to have the discipline to play those positions. Um, I don't know. I like, I just, I think that this will honestly be an experiment that will go wrong in the long run. I don't think it's a long-term thing. There are times when I think Jazz looks competent, but then there's times where I also think he just kind of looks a little lost out there because it's a lot. I'm sure he's a guy that, you know, we've seen it um, even on Twitter recently where he tends to be very ver vocal. He'll, he, he's not um, ignorant to the criticisms that are levied against him and the team, and he'll say what he says sometimes, what he's thinking. Um, I think maybe he got in his own head a little bit, and this is just an early uh, assertion on my part that when he, he kind of went out and said he was going to win a gold glove in center field. You know, you you love the confidence, but then again, you see the early returns and what we saw in spring training, and that translated into the season. And you're just like, okay, like you know, so far it ain't so good, but we still have time. The season is still very young; it's in the embryonic stages, so there's time for it to work. There's time for it to not. I don't think it will. Well, what you touched on briefly is if he's hitting, if he's hitting, and if he's running the bases the way he's expected to then this is like a non-story. That's one thing we should emphasize more on this show is how much the importance of offense outweighs defense on an individual level. You can add so many more wins to your team offensively than you can take away or add defensively just because of 
the big disparity between getting out versus producing runs in all those separate situations. I think ultimately that's where we're going to be, where he's going to perform offensively on a similar per plate appearance level as he did in 2022. And that will put him once again into all-star consideration to this point in the season, because offensively he has been a little bit underwhelming, including a golden sombrero most recent game. Like that kind of colors the way that we're talking about him and discussing him. So I just highlighted a couple visuals for people watching a couple examples of the plays the standout plays that he has made already, ones that, as defined by StatCast, are three-star plays, the kind of plays that are almost a coin flip for the typical defender to catch based on the distance they have to cover, the angle of the ball, the hang time of the ball. And he's made, on back-to-back days against the Mets in City Field, he made these nice plays coming in on the ball. There was one where he came in to his left. Well, that'll be a first pitch strike as Jazz lays out and makes a terrific play in right center field. To make a diving catch. And there was one where he came in a little bit to his right to make a diving catch. Kind of getting into a groove. Line drive to center. Jazz laying out to make the catch on the sinking line drive off the bat of Marte. Oh, nice play in center field. And, and that's, that's a tough play. A ball right at you. You don't know whether to go back sometimes you'll get beat when you come in too quick and that ball flies over your head this time you have to hold up just a little bit nice little diving catch by jazz that seems to be the strength of his is being able to make up that ground and the willingness to leave his feet and the coordination to extend while also keeping his eye on the ball and making those plays that's been the good in what we've seen so far the most of the negative comes with going back on balls and is playing with the in near proximity to the wall on those type of plays, um, getting the, his initial read on these balls as well and understanding when a ball is going to go behind him versus when it's going to come towards him. He seems really um, like a neophyte in that regard. It's just totally foreign to him to like be able to make those reads and interpret that information in the fraction of the second that you're supposed to be able to in order to make those borderline plays when he has to go behind him and back up on those balls. And unfortunately, those are the type of balls that if you don't catch them, those are going to be extra base hits. Those are going to be doubles or triples or inside the park home runs if you're going back on the ball and you can't make a play on it. So that's the thing to watch moving forward. And you just have to accept that his arm is going to be a liability as well. It's it's hard to imagine from my perspective, him getting more than a handful of outfield assists during the course of the entire season, just because that's a, that he's been lacking. And that's a reason why the Marlins put him at second base instead of shortstop is because of concerns about both the accuracy and consistency and strength of his arm as well. Yeah. It's never going to be totally pretty at the end of the day. I don't think it's going to matter very much just because we know what he's capable of doing offensively. What I've liked is that the Marlins are giving him all the reps that he could possibly get. The fact that he has played in every single one of these games so far this season, I think that's the most important part, and I think that's what they need to be committed to until they can go outside the organization and acquire the legitimate center fielder that we know they desperately need in the long run. And you've said it's been a little exacerbated, but his defense has been a little exacerbated by... Um, his struggles offensively initially. I mean, I've said it before. I mean, he's walking a little bit more. I believe he's in a a 44th percentile walk rate this year. But just some numbers for our listeners for what center fielders have done at the start of play on Thursday. Of any position on the field, they have the best OPS of any player. So they're slashing 273, 338, 479. That's an 818 OPS for center fielders this year across Major League Baseball. That's more than DHs. That's more than first baseman. That's more than third baseman. So when Jazz is kind of, you know, flirting with like a five, 600 OPS and he's playing suspect defense, I think they are going to talk a lot about him, especially when he's also just the cover athlete on a marquee video game that had a pretty strong marketing campaign to kind of um, further the narrative of let the kids play when he's not hitting at a new position that, as I just outlined, is performing better than any other on the field right now, it leaves a lot to be desired. Do I think he's going to hit? Sure. I think 
And so long as some of the old problems like swinging out of his shoes don't rear their head again, and maybe if the defense kind of just middles out, then, you know, you're okay with it. But right now he's playing like one of the, I say, worst defender or players at the position in the majors. Can that be said 13 games in just with the output thus far? I guess that's what I'm asserting, but um, relative to the averages, he's kind of just been an early disappointment beyond being healthy. Yeah, and, and to go from that, probably the last thing I wanted to mention um, to you guys on Jazz, just overall, him at center field, do you see him continuing that for the rest of the season, or do you see him maybe, if it doesn't go as well, to be shifted back into maybe an infield-type position, or do you see the Marlins sticking with him throughout the years, no matter how low the downs are or anything like that, that the Marlins – will stick with Jazz for, let's say, maybe over 100 games at center field? I think likely this is his job the entire year, but there are a couple scenarios that could complicate it. The first is my guy, Peyton Burdick, that I'm keeping my eye on. He is ripping the cover off the ball at AAA, and I think in the near-term future, he could get another shot in the big leagues. Um, And if he does well in that shot, and there's somewhat of a logjam in the outfield, um that if he makes it a priority that they keep him in the majors and in the lineup and they believe enough in his center field defense, which is, you know, not perfect either, even though he's a lot more experience out there. He's one factor in this, where if he makes himself a staple of the lineup, particularly in center field, then that frees up jazz to move back to the infield and everybody wins jazz plays a position. He's most experienced at, and the Marlins have uh, another homegrown young cost controlled bat that they desperately need. Um, that might be a little optimistic. The next checkpoint would be right around the trade deadline and seeing who's available at that time, uh, whether the Marlins are close enough to being competitive that they are, they do go out and trade for an, ex- an experienced major league center fielder on a team that's willing to sell at the deadline. And in that case, it's, that's even more so that's a more obvious point where the, they can feel comfortable putting jazz back in the infield and upgrading their team overall with that acquisition. Um, so both of those are pretty significant ifs. If I had to handicap it, I think still the most likely scenario is that Jazz starts the majority of the games, assuming he's healthy. As long as he's healthy, I think he is going to be their primary center fielder this season. And then if definitely this offseason, they'll reevaluate for sure. Um, I mean, you touched on it briefly if the Marlins need power um, and there's a team with an influx of outfielders who maybe need something of their own, the St. Louis Cardinals need pitching. I was just briefly touching on that at the outset of the show. Um, They have a lot of young outfielders. I know the Marlins do too in the minors, but they have some guys that are a little bit more proven. Maybe if you want to get a guy like a Dylan Carlson and you want to part with some of that pitching depth, it doesn't have to be like a marquee name, but you know, there's a team who's struggling to pitch the way the Marlins for most part have struggled to score runs. Maybe there's a solution there. It's a cost-effective one, too, and then you can kind of get an idea of, like, 60-plus games of Carlson or whoever they would go about trading for um, to kind of see who's going to fit their long-term. You know, I agree with you. I I've even thought of the idea. I remember when Colton Wong was kind of moved to center field for the Cardinals because they didn't like his bat, and it had nothing to do with the defense. It's kind of like Jazz, where Jazz moved there out of necessity by way of a player that the team acquired. Colton Wong moved there as a latch-stitch effort to kind of salvage his – tenure with the team um do you think and he even played a little corner outfield which leads me to like question obviously garcia struggled if burdick comes up or you know another one of these guys kind of makes it back to the big leagues if griffin cone nine miraculously shows up or brian miller gets another shot would you ever envision seeing jazz maybe playing right field well obviously garcia sits solaire gets a lot of dh opportunities um i know right field is generally reserved for the guys with the better arms and left field is like the kind of like little league position it's the new right field in the major leagues where you kind of put the guys with the weaker arms there. Do you think jazz could maybe moonlight in a couple of, couple of games in a corner outfield spot and you allow the younger guys to play like Burdick and co, or do you kind of just see you, like you said, you think center field is just it. I mean, he still takes ground balls at second base. So that's never out of the question entirely. Uh, so let, uh, arise isn't going to play every day. So you'd want to maybe, you know, get jazz off his, Beat per se and put him back in a position where he's a little bit more familiar. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, 
positional versatility is important. I don't know if it applies to him, which is kind of, and I don't know if that's him or if that's maybe just an organizational thing, but I don't want to assume prima donna status on a guy like that because of, you know, his standing in the game thus far. But do you think he could possibly lampoon in the outfield in like corner spots? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be center field or they put him back at his most familiar position. There are, even though center field is the hardest outfield spot, there are other subtle differences in the corners um, that take time to learn and get used to as well. And for him to try to learn that stuff in the middle of the season, I I don't see it. So uh, you you just hope it's a hard decision. You hope that eventually somebody like Burdick comes up and performs and hits really well in majors. And you hope that, these veteran players, you touched on Avi Garcia, and the infield version of that is Gene Segura, who is off to a terrible start as well. Um, you hope those guys bounce, like actually get re, actually figure it out and prove to be viable, close to everyday hitters that are worthy of those roles. Um, and if they're not, then you make the hard decisions about just making sure you fill out your lineup with competent players and not worry about the hurt feelings whatsoever. But Jazz will continue to be a priority, and I think it's just going to be center field or second base. Yeah, and to go from that, I think it's time we'll finish off this show with our new stat head segment. Um, we'll take a look at a specific stat head stat and just discuss it uh, for maybe five, ten minutes and really get in depth in that. Uh, for this week, it's going to be in the span of 13 games playing with the Marlins the most hits during that span. And let me give you the top five and starting with number five, some names you'll like here, Dames Lewis and Eli would both love. Number five, Henry Ramirez, 20 hits. Harold Ramirez, Eli's favorite Marlin, 20 hits as well. You just mentioned Cameron Mabin. Well, Cameron Mabin is third on this list with 21 hits back in 2009. Second, D. Gordon, 21, and number one with 23 hits, Luis Arias. Uh, just really incredible what he's doing on that type of span, 13 games. Maybe he'll go more, 14, 15 games. We'll still see um, how it happens. Um, but, Lewis, when you look at this, when you look at Arias' name along guys like D. Gordon, Henry Ramirez, Juan Pierre, guys like that, who are known for, for for just hitting the baseball like that. And you look at the OPS as well as the one, two, five, three, just the highest on that list, maybe overall. What does that tell you about Arias and that company he's in? I mean, the OPS, as Eli noted, is a little exaggerated by the fact that he had mm-hmm. that one cycle game, but he was hitting some doubles early in the season. Um, he, I believe, and, I, and there was another stat head query I did. I wanted to see who has the most hits in a month in Marlins history. And it was Chris Coughlin, I believe who had 52 in his 2009 rookie of the year, September, October, the kind of, you know, they kind of consider that one month arise. would need to average about 1.8 hits a game for the remaining 17 games of the season. And it, I don't think that it's out of the way that he could do it. I mean, he'd have to consistently, he'd probably have to end the month hitting like 450. And I don't even want to know. I don't even know the last time somebody, had a batting average that high over a single calendar month. But, you know, we talk about hot starts with the franchise. What about a first month where he could set a franchise record for hits in a single calendar month? I mean, like, it's so impressive. Like, he, it's, you know, we're kind of, it's like a Kerber enthusiasm episode where we're kind of just circling back to the joke that started it all. But the topic that started this podcast was a rise. And it's such an interesting thing to, to you, to use Stathead and find these queries and kind of, create your own hierarchy of where guys sit in the pantheon of a franchise's history. And I think Arise has very much quickly endeared himself to, to uh, Marlins fans. And it's just another thing for people in baseball to talk about. It's, you know, you're not going to talk about it as much because it's small sample size. And then you have the Rays in the midst of a record setting winning streak. And there's other things that, you know, that, that may be a little bit more impressive. Um, But yeah, it's just like, you know, what he's done thus far, you know, the praises we've sung early, I'm sure we're going to be singing them for years to come. And, you know, you hope as a Marlins fan, he's a guy that is here for a very long time because he is just so fun to watch. He, like I said, he is kind of like a time machine. He's a human time machine. I think, you know, the baseball gods and however way they go about it, every 
25 years, 50 years or so, they present us with a player who seems very out of his era. I mean, and I think Arise is that. It's like he just doesn't strike out. He doesn't attempt to hit for power. And he plays dead ball era baseball, 1960s era, the pitcher era baseball in an era where home runs are, you know, that's the sex appeal of baseball. It's it's so fun to see. It's kind of – and people young and old, you kind of get an idea. It teaches you about the history of the game while also reminding you that there are still players out there that could just shock and awe you and make you remember why you fell in love with it in the first place. And for me, as somebody who lives in South Florida, to you know, Juan Pierre was a reason I fell in love with baseball was because I lived down here and he was a – just such an electric player in the way he kind of went about things. Um, analytics may not suggest that, but yeah, I mean, Arise is kind of like that. He just kind of reinforces your love of the sport. And yeah, he's, and he's just so fun to watch. So it doesn't surprise me that he's gotten off to the start. He has, um, listen, if he hits 400, God, like who knows? It's way too early to even assert that, but that's what you play the games for, right? That's what they say. That's why you play the games. Um, number 10 on that list, Charles LeBlanc. I had to give a, a quick shout-out there and just how good he was for that type of stretch. But to go from that, Eli, what were you going to say? I was going to say that if you've been listening to this pod for almost an hour, you deserve to reward yourself by buying our new T-shirt <laughs> celebrating Luis Arise's cycle. Available at breakingt.com slash fishstripes. I'll leave it at that. Ooh. And I think with that is the perfect place to end it. Go buy the shirts. Go subscribe um, to our Twitter, $2.99 a month. The best thing you can do for $2.99. For myself, Daniel, for Eli, for Lewis, this has been Fishology. We'll have this again in a, a couple weeks. Let's see. Maybe Larissa Rise. Maybe he's hitting 600. Maybe Solaire is slugging 800. Maybe he already has 20 home runs by then. Who knows? But for whatever it is, we will have your coverage for you here in Fishology. And always, go fish.